Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast, broadcasting live from Wheat Ridge, Colorado, the home of the champions. Today is September 28th. 2021 and we will be discussing foreign affairs there's a new issue out new editor i was surprised to see that the print edition has a glossier cover but it's uh all about the war on terror how are you this morning i'm doing fine it's a beautiful day i'm looking forward to uh another article in the foreign affairs which talking about ben drode's uh uh article and it's going to be interesting yes so you're coming to this article cold right you haven't read it yet that's right i haven't read it which I'm looking forward to it. I did read it uh, pre ahead. I chose this one and not the first essay of Foreign Affairs because the first essay in this issue was about the Abbottabad papers. And that was the papers they discovered when they did the raid on bin Laden's compound in Pakistan. And as much as I wanted to see you dry read a bunch of Taliban and Al-Qaeda names, this article has way fewer names that would be difficult to pr- pronounce, um, just reading it without having read it before. So shall we get into the article? Sure. Okay, let's go. Let me find... Uh... How America lets its enemies hijack its foreign policy. Sounds interesting. And Ben Rhodes uh, was a former uh, deputy foreign affairs advisor in the last... in. Uh, 2009-2017, a U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor in the Obama administration. So that's the perspective and also the background he has. Mm-hmm. And so we'll see. Uh, and he, he was an author of another book about uh, after the fall, being American in the world we've made. So this sets his perspective, and we'll see uh, how he, his take on uh, them and us. Yes, and he's a podcaster, host of the podcast Pod Save the World. That's right. So, right. he's just like us. <laughs> right? Yeah. Although our interest in foreign affairs is more uh, layman's interest, would you say? We're not in the game. No, we're not in the game. But we like, to, no. uh, we like to take a look at these foreign affairs articles and try to understand them. Just listen to what the authors are saying and try to understand what they're getting at. Correct? Well, that, that's, that's the theme of, this, of our podcast. And that is uh, keep on talking, but listen and try to understand other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't just talk without any knowledge uh, and don't just listen without understanding. Uh, try to understand what people are saying. And I like the foreign affairs because these are people from a from a position. Uh, they have experience in these areas. Mm-hmm. Now, they might have they they'll have different opinions and different perspectives, uh, but try to understand uh, a, a whole spectrum of opinions and we'll see what uh, what Ben Rhodes has to say. Yes, I, I've read this one, and it's, um, it's a very interesting take. And I'll say just before we get into it that uh, being layman, like not being involved in the um, international relations field, let's say, uh, I've noticed that we'll read articles, and even the people that I disagree with have more experience and expertise than I do on the subject matter. And it's important to realize that. It's like, I don't agree with this person's perspective, but I also acknowledge that they've spent 25 years working in this field, and I haven't. And that's, that's a fascinating thing that I think that a lot of times in America today, there's this denialism of expertise. There's an anti-intellectualism. And mm-hmm. if you feel differently, it doesn't matter that someone has a lot of expertise in a field. That, that doesn't count for anything. For, for me, it does count for something, though. 
But I think also along that vein is that when someone has, is an expert in an area, they see things differently than people who are not experts in the area. And so there needs to be a coming together. And so there needs to be uh, a respect on each other. Someone who understands it, explaining it to someone who does not understand it, what do they not understand? And, and how can you kind of uh, take, bridge that gap, so to speak? Because I think that's, that's what I see today, is that when there's a gap, uh, it just gets wider and broader and deeper. Uh, well, trying to understand what other people are saying uh, is trying to bridge that gap and trying to understand each other. Whether you agree, the, agree with them or not, try to understand what they're saying and where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I think I think that's, to me, I think that's what our podcast is about. Yes, it's one of the main themes of our podcast. But sometimes we just do fun stuff. Today oh, yeah. is more technical. Them and us, how, foreign po how America lets its enemies hijack its foreign policy by Ben Rhodes. I'll start, okay? Yeah. No 21st century event has shaped the United States and its role in the world as much as 9-11. The attacks pierced the complacency of the post-Cold War decade and shattered the illusion that history was ending with the triumph of American-led globalization. The scale of the U.S. response made American government, foreign policy, politics, and society in ways that continue to generate aftershocks. Only by interrogating the excesses of that response can Americans understand what their country has become and where it needs to go. It is difficult to overstate, and in fact easy to understate, the impact of 9-11. By any measure, the war on terror was the biggest project of the period of American hegemony that began when the Cold War ended, a period that has now reached its dusk. For 20 years, counterterrorism has been the overarching priority of U.S. national security policy. The machinery of government has been redesigned to fight an endless war at home and abroad. Basic functions, from the management of immigration to the construction of government facilities to community policing, have become heavily securitized, as have aspects of everyday life travel, banking, identification cards. The United States has used military force in Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Pakistan, the Philippines, Somalia, Yemen, and a number of other countries. Terrorism has become a prominent issue in nearly all of Washington's bilateral and multilateral relationships. The war on terror also reshaped American national identity. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, the United States was a country bereft of the unifying sense of purpose that the Cold War had fostered. Gone was the clarity of the ideological struggle between capitalist democracy and communist autocracy, the free world and closed societies. After 9-11, President George W. Bush marshaled the aspiration for a unifying American identity and directed it towards a new generational struggle. The war on terror, he declared, would be on par with the epochal, epochal struggles against fascism and communism. Bush's framing of counterterrorism as a defining, multi-generational and global war represented an effective form of leadership after an unprecedented national tragedy, but it led inexorably to overreach and unintended consequences. The U.S. government soon abused its powers of surveillance, detention, and interrogation. The wars in Afghanistan and Iraq became about far more than taking out al-Qaeda. American democracy was linked to militarized regime change in ways that undermined its health at home and legitimacy abroad. <clears throat> 
the victories Bush and his administration promised and that conservative media relentlessly predicted never materialized, sapping Americans' confidence in government and provoking a search for internal scapegoats. The jingoistic nationalism of the immediate post-9-11 era morphed into a cocktail of fear and xenophobia that eventually produced a president, Donald Trump, who paid lip service to ending wars abroad and repurposed the rhetoric of the war on terror to attack a shifting cast of enemies at home. The United States now has a president more genuinely committed to ending the country's forever wars. President Joe Biden's determination to do so is demonstrated by his decision to remove U.S. troops from Afghanistan, and even more clearly, by his administration's global agenda. In Biden's first address to the U.S. Congress in April, and in a speech he made at the G7 summit in June, terrorism was supplanted by the challenges of stamping out a pandemic, fighting climate change, revitalizing democracy, and preparing the United States and its allies for an enduring competition with an assertive China. After 20 years, Biden is taking steps to move the country into a new period of history, the post-9-11 era. Yet, the vast infrastructure of the war on terror remains in place, and its prerogatives continue to influence the organization of the U.S. government, the deployment of the U.S. military, the operations of the U.S. intelligence community, and Washington's support for autocratic regimes in the Middle East. As was the case in the Obama administration, those realities constrained the United States' ability to move decisively past the post-9-11 era, lead a global revitalization of democracy, and buttress a rules-based international order, a true pivot that will require more dramatic steps, reconfiguring or dismantling aspects of the U.S. post-9-11 enterprise, and changing a securitized mindset that has encouraged authoritarianism at home and abroad. The U.S. government cannot end forever wars if it is designed to fight them. It cannot revitalize democracy if democracy consistently winds up on the losing end of national security trade-offs. Meanwhile, what the United States represents and what it means to be an American are far more contested today than when the nation reflexively rallied after 9-11. The debate about American identity has become so acute that the country has been rendered more vulnerable to the kinds of violent extremism that its post-9-11 posture was built to prevent. There was a time when a deadly assault on the U.S. Capitol would have been a sobering wake-up call to action. Today, it has been interpreted largely through the prism of tribal politics characterized by right-wing denialism and deflection. The same Republican Party that led the establishment of a multi-trillion dollar security state after September 11th doesn't even want to investigate what happened on January 6th. In this context, one way to redefine the United States' purpose in the world and reshape American identity at home would be to focus on competition with the Chinese Communist Party. That contest is one major concern in U.S. politics that evokes broad bipartisan agreement, and there are good reasons to be concerned about the CCP. Unlike al-Qaeda, it has both an alternative view of governance and society and the power to remake much of the world to suit its own purposes. Ironically, China's ascent in global influence accelerated rapidly after 9-11, as the United States was too often consumed by its focus on terrorism in the Middle East. In terms of geopolitical influence, the CCP has been the biggest beneficiary of the war on terror. There are also good reasons, however, to be wary of how a U.S.-Chinese confrontation might play out. Defining the United States' purpose in the world and American identity through a new us-versus-them construct risks repeating some of the worst mistakes of the war on terror. 
Wow. <laughs> wow, indeed. I, uh, he said a lot of things there. Yeah, but he doesn't like Trump, so he's obviously wrong. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, he, he didn't hide his partisan stance. No, he didn't. And uh, he has an argument. There again, he has an argument. But it's a, I don't know. Um, at the beginning, when he talked about post-9-11, uh, I don't know your take on it, but what I thought of it, it, it reemerged what I thought before, and I guess I keep thinking it, is that the war on terror, uh, you don't attack that like a World War II or Vietnam or a World War One. It's not the same kind of war. And are they trying? And it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so you don't keep doing things that don't work. Uh, you step back and say, well, maybe we had a wrong approach or maybe we had a whole different wrong view of of what who our enemy was. And yes, we don't want terror. But what's the source of terror? OK, if you if you try to wipe out terror over here, but the cause is over here, you can wipe that all you want. It'll just keep coming back, keep coming back because the source is over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you never really wiped out. You never really addressed. I don't say wipe out. Address the source because maybe the source is not a military type of a threat. Uh, it it is a a, a representation of uh, differences of ideology. Ideology, and these people are not going to change. I mean, you say oh, I want I want to change everyone so that they think like me, act like me, talk like me, be like me. Is that what we did? And I guess I'm raising an issue of uh, our. Our foreign approach to making everybody look like us, is that really true? Or instead of us and them, uh, an alternative would be a foreign affairs approach that we respect the differences and learn how to work together. Yeah. And uh, and I think, I don't know, uh, after 20 years, after 20, it hasn't worked. So instead of doing the same thing over and over again, step back and think maybe we had a different, a wrong approach. I think I could see where his argument is going, though. Plus, I've already read the article, but he used the word securitized many times. We've securitized our national policy. So I think what he was saying is in the war on terror, the way we chose to go after Al Qaeda was to establish a surveillance and authoritarian state. And by denying democracy and allowing authoritarianism so that we could go after our stated enemies, Al-Qaeda, what we did was we sort of planted the seeds of the type of behavior that causes people like Al-Qaeda to exist. And when that sentiment was available in our country and we had a leader like, like President Trump, when you don't have a hard enemy to fight abroad, you start fighting yourself. And you say, we need to turn the eye of the surveillance state, the eye of the security state on ourselves. And our real enemies are here at home. They're not abroad. And that's, that's kind of scary. It's a scary reality of the, the framework we set up to fight terror was turned on ourselves. And I, I sort of believe that in a little, in some respect. I see that. And I, and I, I see exactly, I see what he's saying. Uh, I think I see what he's saying. 
But as you explain that, I go, yeah, that's what he said. And I don't know where he's going with it. I haven't read the article. Mm -hmm. But I guess maybe in parallel, I'm thinking, uh, what we did to make Al-Qaeda work uh, is it, it, it can be translated at home. Well, maybe we shouldn't be doing that. Maybe we shouldn't try, and try to have a war on something that's not going to change or fighting the wrong thing. Yes. Maybe maybe we're fighting the wrong thing. Maybe our fight is not with, with military might. Maybe the fight is a different kind of, of uh, uh, interjection of, of solidarity uh, that doesn't require uh, military, military force. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. Maybe we have to go to the rest of the article to see what he's talking about. Yeah. Well, at, least, I, at least I do. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I think I think you're on track. It's We do need to change strategies. You're right. I mean, that's, that's what he's going to get to eventually. But I think Good. that one of the big takeaways is if you define an enemy and you say we're going to defeat that enemy at all costs, it's kind of a tragedy when the way that you defeat that enemy at all costs is by structuring your system of thought the way that your enemy does. Uh, have Had we not learned lessons from the Revolutionary War? When England came over here, did we fight their war? Or did we fight our war? And we won, but how did we win? Did we line up like they did? Or did we have guerrilla warfare? Uh, so uh, you... you uh, Make them come to you, or actually, you don't. Anyway, uh, do you see what I'm getting at? Yeah, yeah. So I think the same thing applies here. Now, the and interesting think, thing is the first art essay, the uh, Bada Bad Papers. Uh huh. Um, we did. We're not going to get into that today, but it was all about how we won. We destroyed Osama bin Laden. We destroyed his command and control network. We. Um, struck back with a fury that he was not expecting. He became virtually impotent for the last 10 years of his life because of the extent of the retaliation that Bush levied upon him. And the point of that article was we won, but at what cost? We had to send men and women into battle for 20 years, you know? And so it's like our objectives, we achieved them. So did we win? Well, we achieved our objectives. But what cost did we pay to achieve those objectives? So that, that's what the first article, a lot of that was about. Interesting, David. Interesting. But, so my question, my question would be, if you fight your enemy by destroying the symptoms and never addressing the cause, do you strengthen their cause? I think so. I mean, did they sort of have so did they sort of have some sort of moral victory? Everyone That's that right. right. Everyone that was involved, they ended up having a really bad time. But the ideals they were fought for, that they fought for, um, it didn't play out the way they thought. But we restructured our entire society, and we if, made if, ourselves. If you were the mission, if fueled the missions of all the other. Uh, uh, splinter groups mm-hmm. that became powerful. But also it made us sort of assume a posture that was more like them. Oh, I, I see. That's what he was saying. I, mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Very good point. I think he, I think he's correct. Yeah. And then, and we saw it play out at home. 
So, do you wish to read the next part? Here's a short. <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Okay, the ocean liner. That's an interesting uh, subtitle. Mm-hmm. The ocean liner. Okay. President Barack Obama used to call the U.S. government an ocean liner, a massive lumbering structure that is hard to turn around once pointed in a certain direction. After 9-11, the Bush administration pointed the ship in a new direction and generated an enormous amount of momentum. The national security apparatus was refocused on fighting terrorism. Vast new bureaucracies were established, organizational charts redrawn, New authorities granted, budgets rewritten, priorities upended. After U.S. forces routed the Taliban in Afghanistan in 2001, a delirious triumphalism took hold in Washington. U.S. global influence never seemed stronger, and the politics of being tough on terrorism was resoundingly validated at the ballot box in the 2002 midterm election. When the GOP swept control of Congress, Ever since, the United States has been cleaning up the wreckage left behind in the ocean liners awake. Today, the countries that experienced the most intense fighting of the war on terror are mired in various degrees of conflict. Afghanistan is returning to the state of civil war and Taliban ascendancy that preceded 9-11. Iraq uh, has weathered a lengthy insurgency that generated al-Qaeda in Iraq, AQI, which later morphed into the Islamic State, also known as ISIS. The country remained riven uh, by intercommunal rivalry and Iranian influence. Libya, Somalia, and Yemen all lack governing authorities and host brutal proxy wars. There is certainly a basis for U.S. military action after 9-11, and certain threats necessitate a military response. Yet the conditions in these countries demonstrate the limits of military invention and raise uncomfortable questions about whether, on balance, the people of these countries would have been better off without it. The costs of the post-9-11 wars have been staggering. Over 7,000 U.S. service members have died in Afghanistan and Iraq. More than 50,000 were wounded in action, and more than 30,000 U.S. veterans of post-9-11 conflicts have taken their own lives. Hundreds of thousands of Afghans and Iraqis lost their lives, and 37 million people, an estimated by Brown University's Cost of War Project, have been displaced by the post-9-11 conflicts that have involved U.S. forces. Meanwhile, the price tag of those wars and for caring for those who fought them is approaching $7 trillion. Counterterrorism has also consumed an incalculable amount of the limited bandwidth of the U.S. government. Everything from the time and attention of the president and senior officials to staffing uh, and prioritizing, prior, prioritization within agencies. Consider what else the United States could have done with those resources and that bandwidth over the last two decades as the country struggled to keep pace with climate change, epidemics, widening inequality, technological disruption, and diminishing U.S. influence, especially in places enticed by the CCP's growing economic clout and promises of infrastructure improvements. 
Of course, the party that instigated the war on terror was Al-Qaeda. After 9-11, the United States and other countries faced the risk of further catastrophic terrorist attacks and had to respond. To their credit, the U.S. military and the U.S. intelligence community decimated Al-Qaeda and took out its leader, Osama bin Laden. ISIS has been similarly rolled back through a campaign that involved a limited U.S. presence on the ground. My personal experience with the Americans who carry out U.S. counterterrorism policies has led me to overwhelmingly admire them. They have served their country bravely through administrations, with shifting priorities, helping prevent attacks and save lives. Aspects of the country's counterterrorism apparatus have certainly been necessary. That reality, however, does not erase the enormous excesses and warped risk calculations that define Washington's response to 9-11. The kinds of attacks that the country spent trillions of dollars to prevent would have caused only a fraction of the deaths that could have been prevented by a more competent response to COVID-19, by the minimal gun safety measures that have been blocked by Congress, or by better preparation for deadly weather events intensified by climate change all of which were neglected or stymied in part because of Washington's fixation on terrorism. The scale of the costs and opportunity cost of the post 9-11 wars suggests that the country needs a structural correction, not simply a change of course. Very interesting. Yeah, I thought that was a very good section. Um, now, there's always opportunity cost, right? No matter what you do. If you go get tacos, you're not eating pizza. Yeah. But I think what he's saying is he admires and respects the counterterrorism people, the people who have stopped attacks. But those attacks may have killed hundreds or thousands of Americans, and they've worked to stop them. But the costs of stopping those attacks are nothing compared to if those resources were used in other areas. Yeah, that was a good point. But on the other hand, I think what he's saying is that uh, the war on terror took attention off of other things that the, the aftermath of a war uh, was not the same when you only solve parts of it. You have all these other things going on mm-hmm. that you didn't address. I didn't say that well, but uh, it was a distraction. A war on terror, first of all, the word war, and you had military invention and you had terror, it took the attention away from other things that were as important, but maybe not as visible. Yeah, like climate change, gun laws, pandemic prevention. And it's easy to throw out pandemic prevention just because the last year was handled so poorly here in the United States, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, last year and a half. But, uh, I mean, there's a good point to it. Pandemic prevention is certainly something that had we spent $100 billion more, we might have saved 100,000 lives. And that's... And he, he mentioned at the end that the, the opportunity of the wars suggests that the country needs a structural correction, not simply a change of course. And so maybe we have to rethink uh, how we approach things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's maybe that's what he's getting at. And, uh, and, and rethink... Uh, uh, how we attack things. And we can't, 
it's not it's not uh, uh, the world is not it's a century old it's not like world war ii again where you fight the obvious enemies uh no the enemy is maybe ourselves and i mean honestly and i don't really want to get too into it but let's take a look at this last paragraph here Mm -hmm. uh, warped risk calculations that defined the kind of attack we spent trillions to prevent would have caused a fraction of the deaths had they been prevented by a more competent response to COVID-19, minimal gun safety measures, or better preparation for the deadly weather events intensified by climate change. Now, the fascinating thing is that in America, especially, those are partisan political issues. Exactly. It's like, yeah. you know, if you're a Democrat, you're anti-COVID. If you're a Republican, you're pro-COVID. And it's, it's strange, but I... One thing that sort of boggles my mind about American politics is, can you be for extraordinarily low taxes and low regulation, but also be anti-COVID? You know, could you be for gun regulation, but also be for low taxes and low regulation? I mean, it's it's fascinating. They have to move it. They call it tribal. You know, he called it tribalism earlier. Mm -hmm. And it seems like you can sort of, as an individual, adopt a hodgepodge of views and say, oh, well, this climate change threatens my beachfront property. I believe in climate change. <laughs> we should do something to prevent it. You know what I mean? I, I feel like you don't just need to accept whatever views, partisan views are, are presented to you. It's fascinating. So I don't want to derail this with discussions of partisan politics, but especially gun control and climate change, those have become partisan issues in America. Right. And it's it's just fascinating to me. He, he's willing to throw them out because it's like they shouldn't be. Right. It seems like what he's saying is that the, the, the war on terror was a us and them. And that us and them was brought home. And the us and them then become the two, two parties. Mm -hmm. Whatever the other party says has to be bad. And whatever we say is right and vice versa. And so uh, we, we have more of a reactionary, uh, reactionary type of a. Uh, uh, policy uh, program. Uh, we we react to things. We don't proact. We don't plan for the future. We don't look at what's going to happen and let's mitigate against that. We just respond now because we want to win today. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very, very uh, uh, myopic view of decision making. And to me, that's the structural correction that needs to be made. Yeah. That we need to come together and be a United States, not a us and them. Uh, bringing it home. I think it needs to change. And uh, when you look at some of the decisions that were made, uh, they really, they really, if it was, if it was your party, you embraced it. If things changed and that same issue was the other party, all of a sudden you were against it. Mm -hmm. And so it really had nothing to do with the issue. The issue was, was it your party or the other party? Yeah. And that us and them came home. And that's that's tearing up our country. Like, uh, I mean, this is a, a one more example. It's like with the vaccines. They say no one can tell me to get a vaccine. It's my body, my choice. No one should ever tell anyone what they can do with their body. And we should ban abortion. You know. <laughs> so it's like it's pro-choice when it's something that affects you. It's anti-choice when it's something that affects somebody else. And it's it's fascinating that it's not about principle. It's about what side are your people on, right? That's true. That's true. And when you look at 
the response to COVID from the United States compared to the response of COVID from other nations in this world that we live in? It's one world. Uh, this, the contrast is striking, and it's really kind of embarrassing. Mm-hmm. And you can find, um, you know, people that are saying, no, we're the best. Like, look at how, what a hard time Australia is having. And it's, you know, they still are under 50 deaths per million people where we're well over 2,000. So it's like, yeah, they are having a hard time by their standards. By our standards, they're doing great. <laughs> so, I mean, if you just adopt two separate sets of standards, yeah, we're fine. We're fine because we're able to tolerate more death. That doesn't seem right. But I think we're getting off the topic of conversation, which is the war on terror. And to go back to something you said, which is a very good point, re-echoing the title, Them Versus Us, when you say, I want to spend money on gun control, I want to spend money on pandemic preparedness, they say those things aren't a problem. You know it's a problem? The big scary terrorists across the sea. And every dollar that we spend on gun control or climate change or, co- or pandemic preparedness, our dollars were taken away from fighting those big ter- scary terrorists across the sea. And it's very easy to sell someone on, let's spend the money on fighting them not on these issues that we don't really understand here at home or that we deliberately make deliberately confusing here at home. Yeah, another another point is that look at the history of powerful nations. Uh, and we were powerful. We are powerful. Mm-hmm. If you're a powerful nation, you're not going to be beat from the outside. Powerful nations were brought down from the inside. And from the inside were people fighting against each other. And are we going down that path? Or is is the the two parties, both parties, taking us down a path of destruction that other other civilizations, powerful civilizations, have taken the same path? And are we going to learn from history? <clears throat> not, not let that happen to us. Mm-hmm. And the only way is that we come together and have a as as he says, as as Rhodes says, a, a, a structural correction of how we approach things of coming together. And it's no longer a bipartisan type issues. We come together with uni- unified issues and we become a United States of America, not a divided state of America. Yeah. We'll see. I mean, we'll it's, see. it's easy to say those types of things, too. But how do you unite? How do you do it? Like, if, again, if, it's a paradigm change. We have to change how we think things. Yeah. If you're fundamentally opposed to someone's policies, but you'll accept them just to go along. You know, you think someone's policies are anti-democratic, but... We need to unite at this time. So I don't want to be divisive. So I'll, I'll acquiesce to your well, anti-democratic policy. <clears throat> you see what I'm saying? Well, what, yes, but the idea of that concept, for the last 20 years, uh, the people uh, who are 30 or, or like became the teenagers, so that they're 30 or 40 years or younger, are those the people who are taking up uh, the, the, the bipartisan uh, banner? See what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So we, we've been trained for 20 years to be us and them, us and them, us and them. And I think Rhodes is saying is we started with terrorism and then that is coming home to roost. And we have 20 years to have that correction be done. Correct the 20 years of of this is how and the people grew up with it. Mm-hmm. We've had 20 years here. People in their 20s and 30s and 40s grew up with this. And the and people so, who are older that haven't. So how do we change it? That may be why it's easy to start, hard to end. We're back in the That's article, right. folks. And this section okay. is called Easy to Start, Hard to End. 
From the president on down, nearly all of the Biden administration's top officials played a role in the Obama administration's efforts to extricate the United States from its post-9-11 wars, a complex and politically fraught task that ultimately reduced the number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan and Iraq from nearly 180,000 in 2009 to roughly 15,000 by 2017. And during Obama's second term, Washington's global agenda looked something like the one that Biden described in his address to the G7, organizing the world to combat climate change, strengthening global health systems, and pivoting to Asia while trying to contain a revanchist Russia. With the benefit of hindsight, however, it is clear that the Obama administration, whose critics usually fault it for excessive restraint, actually erred in the opposite direction by sustaining aspects of the post-9-11 project. A 2009 troop surge in Afghanistan prolonged the war despite diminishing returns. The expanded use of lethal drones achieved tactical successes, but institutionalized a capability to kill people in many countries. Acquiescence to authoritarian allies, including a Saudi regime that launched a catastrophic war in Yemen, undermined U.S. rhetoric about democracy. After Trump took office, his administration deployed tens of thousands of U.S. troops to the Middle East to confront Iran. Relaxed restrictions meant to limit civilian casualties casualties, cast aside concerns about human rights, fully embraced autocratic allies and partners, and deprioritized climate change and global health. The clear lesson is that it won't be enough to merely redirect the ocean liner. Biden and Congress should redesign it. Take climate change. Under Obama, the effort to achieve the Paris Agreement to limit global warming drew on the scarce climate expertise scattered across agencies and a fraction of the resources allotted by Congress for counterterrorism. The Obama White House went to great lengths to connect that climate expertise with the machinery of U.S. foreign policy. The bilateral and multilateral relationship management required to achieve anything substantial in international politics. Once the Trump administration took office, this nascent prioritization of the climate was halted. The same thing happened to a White House office dedicated to pandemic preparedness that Obama had established after the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Trump shuttered the office, folding its portfolio into a directorate focused on weapons of destruction. Pandemic preparedness was quite literally absorbed into the infrastructure of the war on terror. Today, the Biden team has the advantage of two decades worth of evidence that the focus on terrorism has warped national priorities. With the rising public concerns about pandemics, a warming climate, and challenges from China and Russia, to truly prioritize those issues, Biden and his Democratic allies in Congress should work to dismantle parts of the post-9-11 enterprise, the 2001 Congressional Authorization for Use of Military Force, which has been used to give legal standing to a wide range of military interventions since 9-11, should be repealed and replaced by something far more narrowly tailored, with a built-in sunset before the end of Biden's term. Drone strikes should cease to be routine and should be used only in circumstances in which U.S. government is prepared to publicly reveal and justify its actions. The U.S. military's global force posture should reflect the diminishing prioritization of the Middle East. The Pentagon should reduce the oversized presence of U.S. forces in the Persian Gulf region, which escalated during the Trump years. To make permanent the focus on issues such as climate change and global health, the Biden administration should increase federal investments in clean energy, pandemic preparedness, and global health security, and should accompany that spending with major reforms. For instance, agents 
agencies such as the State Department and the U.S. Agency for International Development should ramp up their climate expertise, and the intelligence community and the military should devote more resources to understanding and responding to truly existential dangers that threaten the American people. I'm going to take a little drink of coffee. The Biden team will encounter resistance to those steps, just as the Obama administration often found itself swimming against the tide of American politics. The effort to close the costly and morally indefensible U.S. prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, was stymied by members of Congress from both parties. The cynical extremity of the Republican response to the 2012 attack on U.S. facilities in Benghazi, Libya, blended a growing penchant for far-right conspiracy theories with Republican attempts to delegitimize any foreign policy initiative supported by the Democratic Party. The Iran nuclear deal, designed to prevent both an Iranian nuclear weapon and yet another war, proved to be more contentious and drew less congressional support than did the authorization of an open-ended war in Iraq. Yet Biden is in a post-Trump, post-pandemic moment. The GOP's embrace of Trumpism clearly endangered the lives of Americans and destroyed the party's claim to a foreign policy that provides that promotes American values. Biden and his team are uniquely suited to make the case to the public that they are more trustworthy, competent, and capable of securing the country and strengthening its democracy. To do so, the United States must abandon the mindset that undermines democratic values. Consider the experience of Mohammed Sultan, an Egyptian-American who took part in the 2011 protests in Tahrir Square. He celebrated the downfall of the Egyptian dictator Hosni Mubarak and the democratic opening that followed. But after a 2013 military coup ousted Egypt's elected president, Mohamed Morsi, Sultan joined protesters in Cairo's Rabah Square. Security forces opened fire, killing at least 800 people. Sultan was shot. He was then imprisoned, tortured, and encouraged by interrogators to commit suicide. He went on a hunger strike that lasted almost 500 days and resisted the appeals of ISIS recruiters who were allowed to enter his cells. He was released only after a personal appeal from Obama to Egypt's dictator, Abdel Fattah el-Sisi. This dystopian scenario reveals the dysfunction of a post-9-11 U.S. foreign policy that provides billions of dollars in military and economic aid to a brutal regime that allows ISIS recruiters to roam its overpopulated prisons, fostering the very radicalization that justifies both the regime's brutality and U.S. assistance. The war on terror was always at war with itself. The United States subsidizes Egyptian repression while paying lip service to democratic values. Just as Washington continues to sell weapons to Saudi government that silences dissent and has waged a brutal war in Yemen, it is no coincidence that the governments of key U.S. partners in the war on terror, not just Egypt and Saudi Arabia, but also Israel and Turkey, among others, have grown more repressive since 9-11, contributing to the rising tide of authoritarianism around the world that the United States wants to roll back. Revitalizing global democracy is not compatible with a permanent global war on terror. The balance of trade-offs has to shift. U.S. military assistance should be conditioned on respect for human rights. Washington should cast off the hypocrisy that has weighed down American foreign policy for too long. Wow. That was intense. And it's fascinating to me, Ben Rhodes, you know, he was an assistant in the National Security Council. But there's people out there that still... They're not so pragmatic that they say, well, what's the alternative to supporting the brutal regime in Egypt? You know what I mean? 
It's like even worse guys would be in control if we didn't prop up that dictatorship. He says, no, we should have strict conditions. It's fascinating to me that he's not so far gone, not so jaded, that he still believes a world in which respect for human rights as a guiding U.S. policy point is possible. And that sort of gives me hope that someone that works in that field believes that, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, from that section, the, for when I heard it, I got the impression that from the previous section, he talks about maybe a, some kind of a uh, correction to our approach of us and them. And in that section, he went back to his argument to support his position was us and them. He kept talking about the Democrats and the Republicans and uh, what they did uh, needs to be changed to what we do. And I don't know, I just got the feeling that that he his arguments, maybe those arguments using that approach has worked in the past and maybe it's uh, very effective. But I don't know, I just got the feeling that, am I wrong, David, that, that he kept talking about the GOP is doing this and we need to change it. They did look what Biden is doing. Biden is as this and say it seemed to me like there was a separate there was a us and them kind of a flavor to it. And maybe I was just reading into it. I don't know. I think this guy has a partisan bent, Ben Rhodes, but I will say that one of the most powerful sections was the Egyptian guy mm-hmm. that took place in the Arab Spring. Um and if you look at the dates, 2011, 2013, that's firmly when Obama was president. So he's saying mm-hmm. this isn't a Republican Democratic. It's that our the idea of how we fought the war on terror, how we were entrenched in it, was wrong. So, I mean, he I think he does point more specifically to policies that were put forth, especially or redacted by the Trump administration that were they should have been left in place. But he also says bad things happened on Obama's watch, too. So, but yet there is a a fair amount of, but maybe the reason why he's positing that, you know, the Republicans' ideas about foreign affairs are bad is because they are bad, not because they're Republican. Could be. In his his perspective. And uh, actually, some of the Republicans even said, you know, Trump was wrong, but they're not going to impeach him. (laughs) Yeah. So we're not going to take action because, again, it's just just uh, saving the party uh, and maybe uh, looking at small potatoes and big potatoes. You know, uh, you go ahead and uh, overlook this because there's, there's bigger issues at stake and they want to preserve the party because the two party system is what they're after. And I don't know. It's it's a there again. This this uh, is a really stimulating discussion, an important discussion. But it's a, but I think the importance is not to come down strongly on just one side or the other is realize that there's multiple sides to this. Mm -hmm. But also, I think it's also important to note he did castigate something that happened on Obama's watch. The way we were fighting the war on terror, this Egyptian freedom fighter could get sent to prison, get attempted to be recruited, brutally tortured, attempted to be recruited by ISIS, and the whole time we're giving money to the government that's allowing this to happen. Right. And so... Um, I don't know. And I also think that my point, my point is well taken <laughs> that sometimes you can think of policy as bad, not because it's ideologically opposed to what you think the policy should be, 
Like, you know, that's a Republican policy, so I think it's bad. Or that's a Democratic policy, so I think it's bad. Sometimes you can think it's bad on its face. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter who came up with it. It's still a bad idea. That's right. That's right. That's what I was saying before about can you want tax breaks but also want gun control? Can you, you know, can you want a huge tax cut but then also be worried that your your beachfront property is going to get destroyed by climate change? And so you want also something done about I mean, I think that, you know, re- like Republican ideals and specific policy positions, they shouldn't just be a monolith. Um, Mm -hmm. But we're closing in. I think this is the final section, maybe. Do you want to read it? The War at Home. The War at Home. The War at Home. Okay, the War on Terror not only accelerated authoritarianism trends elsewhere, it did so at home, too. The jingoism of the post-9-11 era fused national security and identity politics, distorting ideas about what it means to be an American and blurring the distinction between critics and enemies. After 9-11, an us-versus-them right-wing political and media apparatus stirred up anger against Americans who were not sufficiently committed to war on terror and hyped the threat of an encroaching Islamic other. But as the 9-11 attack receded into memory and it became clear that no grand victories would take place in Afghanistan and Iraq, the nature that others shifted. Fear-mongering about terrorism and conspiracy theories about creeping Sharia uh, morphed into fear-mongering about immigrants on the southern border, anger at athletes who took a knee during the national anthem to protest police violence and conspiracy theories about everything from Benghazi to voter fraud. More often than not, this dynamic targeted minority populations. Ironically, this redirection of the xenophobic currents of the country's post-9-11 politics ended up fueling terrorism rather than fighting it, with white nationalists running over a counter-demonstrator in Charlottesville and killing 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. It also contributed to once unthinkable authoritarian scenarios. When fellow citizens are relentlessly cast as enemies of the state, even a violent American insurrection can become real. When a superpower embraces a belligerent strain of nationalism, it also ripples ripples out around the world. The excesses of the post 9-11 US policies were repurposed by authoritarians elsewhere to target political opponents, shut down civil society, control the media, and expand the power of the state under the guise of counterterrorism. Of course, this is not Washington's doing. Yet, just as Americans should recoil when when Russian President Vladimir Putin indulges in whataboutism, it it excuses, but let let me read that again. Yet, Just as Americans should recoil when Russian President Vladimir Putin indulges indulges in whataboutism to excuse his abuses, they should not blithely ignore their own country's overreach and belligerent nationalism, which undermines Washington's effort to push back against Putin, defend democratic values, and reinforce a rules-based order. Like Putin, Chinese President Xi Jinping 
has embraced the American war on terror as a template for repression and a justification for abuses. In 2014, Ugor terrorists took dozens of lives in the autonomous territory of Xinjiang, Xinjiang in western China. State media referred to its attacks as China's 9-11. Xi urged CCP officials to follow the Americans' post-9-11 script, setting in motion a crackdown that would eventually lead to a million Uyghurs being thrown into concentration camps. At a meeting in 2019, Trump reportedly told Xi that detaining the Uyghurs in camps was exactly the right thing to do. Although nothing in the United States response to 9-11 approaches the scale of the CCP's repression, Trump's comment was far from the only validation that the CCP would find in the post-11 era. In the years following 9-11, several Uyghurs uh, were held in the U.S. prison at Guantanamo Bay. None were found guilty of terrorism or deemed to pose a serious danger to the United States. When Obama tried to close the prison at the outset of his presidency, there was a plan to release a few Uyghurs, Uyghur uh, detainees in the United States to show that the American government was willing to do its part, since it was asking other countries to repatriate some of their citizens who had been detained in Guantanamo, but clearly for release, and the Uyghurs could not be safely repatriated to China. Obama's proposal was met with hyperbolic opposition that resulted in restrictions that prevented the prison's closure. Republican Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Senator Joe Lieberman, an independent from Connecticut, led the charge, releasing a joint declaration that claimed that the Uyghurs, quote, have radical religious views, which made it difficult for them to assimilate into our population, end quote. A statement that sound, sounded precisely like CCP propaganda regarding its actions in Xinjiang. America's rightfully take pride in their country's tradition of global leadership and its aspiration to be a city upon a hill that sets an example for the world. But why would they think that others would follow their example only when it reflects positive values and qualities? When Americans invade another country for no good reason, support auto autocracy out of convenience, and stigmatize minorities in their own country, they should not be surprised when other countries emulate those misdeeds or use them to justify their own authoritarian excesses. Americans must confront this uncomfortable reality not because Washington should retreat from its world, but because it cannot cede the field to leaders like Putin and Xi. The United States must live up to the better story it tells itself as a leader of the free world. Ultimately, this is the most important lesson that Americans must learn from the post 9-11 period. Restoring American leadership requires rebuilding the example of American democracy as the foundation of the United States foreign and national security policy. Interesting, and that would have been during his tenure, I think, with the Obama administration. That's right. I'm also, so that was something that I think was grinding his gears when it happened. Um, so he, I mean, he has every right to put it in his foreign affairs article. That's right. He also, does. also, we do a it's lot, something he knows about. We do a lot of meta analysis on this. And it says that Ben Rhodes has a successful podcast now. And I think 
that if he were still in foreign service, if he were still in the National Security Council, my guess is that his words would be much more tempered. <laughs> I think these full-throated objections to Xi, to President Putin, these condemnations of things that happened during the Obama administration, his clear disdain for Trump, I think they're type of things that you need to you need to take that position when you're in media. Do you, do you do you see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And how if you are in foreign service, you have to be a bit more almost by definition of your position diplomatic. Mm-hmm. And so you are a diplomat. Yeah, cuz you cuz you literally are a diplomat. Um right. So I think that what we get is I think there's a lot of people that say the right things, but they do have their own ideas of the way the world should work in the foreign service. And that's, that's I said this last time you got done reading. He still believes that human rights should be a defining principle for right. making deals. Now, I'm sure that generals or chairmen of the Joint Chiefs of Staff can tell you, if we don't prop up this authoritarian regime that has brutal human rights abuses, the alternative is much worse. And from Ben Rhodes's position, he's like, I was on the National Security Council, and I understand those pragmatic things. I still think that human rights should be a defining, deciding factor in whether or not we help a country. And it's like, it's kind of refreshing. I think it's much easier to say when you're a podcaster <laughs> and not when you're a diplomat. But I'm glad that he's saying it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can be, uh, yeah, where you... How you say things really depends on where you are, and it really does. And yeah, we do analyze things from that perspective, and I think that's important too, because that's exactly where people people speak from. But also, uh, people also speak uh, from where they want to go. Uh, they'll say things to get them places. So, and that's kind of what we're seeing here. And uh, that's what's nice about journals, podcasts. Uh, you get uh, you get what people actually think, and people can be more honest with themselves and with with each other. Mm-hmm. And uh, well, what do you think of this section of he's talking about the? Um, um, I think his point is well taken. That yes, we can be whatever our when you're powerful, and we are uh, our. Um, we can be a positive influence and a negative influence. They'll see the good things and even the bad things that we do. Yes. And uh, and he and he began naming names. You know, mm-hmm. he says, wait, wait a minute, look, look, wait a minute, be careful what you do here, because it's gonna it's gonna uh, motivate people to do things in other countries. Um, point well taken. It is a point well taken. I remember one of the things I saw in college that I thought that guy's kind of clever. It was. There used to be a former prime minister of Iran named Ahmadinejad. And Bush had declared Iran, North Korea, and Iraq the axis of evil. And there was pressure on Iran to stop their uranium enrichment. And Ahmadinejad gets out and he gives a speech. And I remember I was like, no one's going to give this any credence because he's the leader of Iran and we're America and... We have there are a de facto enemy, or whatever. But Ahmadinejad said, George Bush doesn't understand that we're enriching uranium so that we can have nuclear power plants. You know there will be an end to p- 
petroleum production in the Middle East, you know, maybe not in my lifetime, but in my children's lifetime. And we're going to need to search for alternative forms of energy. And that's what Iran is doing. We're trying to build alternative forms of energy for our nation because we're not monsters. Only a monster would build a bomb out of nuclear energy and drop it on another nation. And we're not (laughs) monsters. Only monsters would do that. So he was making the point that that's what you did. That's not what we would do. And I thought that was fascinating. Like, that's kind of what Ben Rhodes is saying, right? Uh It's like, you got to be careful. You can sort of say that you're the shining city on the hill, but people will pay attention to your actions as much as they pay attention to your, uh, your words. And they'll pay attention to the bad things you do as much as they'll pay attention to the good things you do. Mm-hmm. And I, I think also the the war on terror villainized the people of other countries, and uh, all the people over there are not villains. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think uh, the point well taken that that what he was saying about nuclear energy is true. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is a source of energy that is much more efficient than than fossil fuels. Yeah, and it's he's very also interesting. he's also saying Iranians would never use a nuclear bomb on someone, which you have done basically. Yeah, we wouldn't do what you do. So <laughs> yeah. you might think we're like you, but we're not. We're not evil. We're not evil like you. That's what he was saying, yeah. and and I thought that's pretty clever because. Because everyone's like, oh, no, Iran's trying to enrich uranium. Oh, no, they're trying to make a bomb. He's like, we wouldn't try to make bombs with this. That's something you would do. <laughs> and it's like obvious that that's what you say in a speech. It's clear that they wanted to make bombs. Yeah, but that's not what he said. He says, because that's something you would do, because that's something you did. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a good, it's a, that's, that's a good point here. It's a good good place to say that. It fits right into this article. It was one of the f- first times I remember as a young person, 19, 18 years old, hearing the leader of a hostile regime make a really good point. And it's like, that's a historical point, but it's like, you can't deny that we did drop two nuclear bombs on an adversary. And we're the only nation in the world that's ever done that, you know, throughout the entire Cold War there was this theor- fear of mutually assured destruction. Did the Russians ever drop a nuclear bomb on anyone? No. We're, the, we're still the only ones that have ever done it. And yes, we didn't know the destructive power of the atomic age, perhaps when we did that at the end of World War II. And yet a hostile regime could say, you're the only ones that would go that far. We're not, we're not like that. And it's, it might just be lip service. You know, they may be saying that while they're trying to develop a bomb. But I thought, that's a pretty good point. Uh, well, then, and along those lines, too, let me ask you a question. Uh, and this is in the form of a question. I'm not saying this is true. Uh, it's a question bringing up a point. Uh, 9-11. The attack on the Twin Towers. Mm-hmm in the minds of the people who did it or the countries who are who would support that is that it doesn't even come close to what we did to Japan with the two atomic bombs i i think that the thing is that we were acting as a nation state when we bombed japan whereas the 911 that was just a small faction of people 
that were radicalized in a number of different nation states. You know what I mean? So like if you were a Saudi Arabian citizen in Jeddah, you didn't see the actions of Osama bin Laden as the actions of your country. But what I'm saying is, is that the attack on 9-11 is nothing compared to what America did to Japan. Mm -hmm. And it's just a small version. And all of a sudden they think that's so terrible. Do you think they think that? I, I don't know because it was asymmetrical warfare. You know, it wasn't under the rules of engagement or whatever. Um, so that's, that's why it was so shocking to us. And they didn't attack a military target. They attacked a civilian target. Although you could say when you levy bombs on Hiroshima. And, but didn't we drop pamphlets before the uh, dropping of the bombs? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that argument is... I would say the amount of destruction that we levied on Nagasaki and Hiroshima is greater than the amount of destruction that was levied on 9-11. But it's, I think it's different because there was no war declared. There was, you know, Al-Qaeda didn't say, we're going to do this. So you, you know, prepare. And it was a sneak attack. Mm -hmm. So, but yes, I think the level of destruction was greater when the atomic bombs were dropped. Yeah, I'm just saying in, their, in the minds of the people that that made this happen, that it was uh, they were justified in doing it. I, I think in their, in their minds, in their minds, they were totally justified. And it wasn't even near the destruction that uh, that the America had done to other countries. Yeah. In their mind. I'm saying in their mind. That's like, how they justify If you're trying to look at it from their perspective. Right. Yeah. Right. And it's just difficult. Uh, it's difficult to play that devil's advocate and not say something that will be used against you later, if you know what I mean? That's right. That's right. Because I'm not saying they're right or wrong. I'm saying, how do they think? Mm -hmm. You know, if you're listening to other people and try to understand what they're saying, sometimes you have to think, how do they think? Yeah. Where are they from? Uh, how do they see things? And then you'll see what they say. And also you'll predict what they're going to do. So you have to think of what other, how, how other people think. I, I get a feeling with from these foreign affairs article and even this one that, uh, of course, what what Rose is doing is bringing it home, which I think is really good, uh, healthy, because we need to strengthen our our country at home before we can be strong other places. But you do have to think how other people think, like in the Middle East, they don't think like us. And so you have to understand that in order to deal with people. Don't yeah. expect them to be like you or because or may, they're, they're not. Or maybe they do think like us. And Or maybe maybe they know how we think better than we know how they think. And that's power over us. I think saying someone doesn't think like us, maybe we all do think the same. We just sort of give ourselves the benefit of a doubt when it comes to our demons. <laughs> and that's what he's saying. Maybe. If you export maybe. violence, if you support authoritarian regimes that are brutally repressive, and that's your foreign policy, other countries will look around and be like, well, it works for the U.S. Why don't we do that too? And I think that, you know, if you ask someone, do you think that the U.S. supports brutal regimes? They say, no, no, we're the uh, beacon of democracy. But he's saying, in fact, that may not be true. And right. we are an example to other countries around the world. But the thing is that, our good deeds and our misdeeds are examples. And people will say, oh, if we do something that's untoward, but it's effective, why don't we emulate that behavior? And I think that's what China and Russia are saying. So it's like, 
oh, what they're doing, they don't think the way we're doing. That's why they're doing it. It's like, well, they learned it by watching us. So they do <laughs> think the way that we do. Do you see what I'm saying? Or they see what works, and they'll take that and apply it to to their to their uh, their goals. And then we say our distorted perception of ourselves. We would never do that. And it's like the only reason they're doing it is because they saw us doing that. So it's mm-hmm. like we're just miles apart. Like no, we're exactly the same. So I th- it all depends on how you th- say they don't think the way we do. Maybe they do. Maybe you, they do. Yeah. And they're just trying to maximize. And we don't. I think we don't understand. Uh, where they're from. I remember years ago, 40, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, uh, about 40 years ago, uh, I was talking to a student from the Middle East and uh, and they were saying that they're in America getting an education. And, uh, and I says, yeah, he says, and the subject came up about Americans. I said, well, we hate Americans and we hate America. And I go, okay. And I thought, well, the people, you know, and then she said, well, if you grew up afraid of American bombs uh, getting too close to you and killing some of your neighbors and some of your friends and some of your relatives, and that's how you grew up. He says, you'll always think that way because mm-hmm. that's that's how you grew up. And it wasn't one time. It was a continual thing. And it was American bombs. You go, oh, okay, this is years ago. And I think that, uh, like, if you look at, um, you know, this is just to sort of take Ben Rhodes' argument a little bit further. It's like if you look at BLM protests against the police. Well, if you live in suburban Fort Wayne, Indiana, you say, I don't understand what these people are talking about with the police. Like, my interactions with them have always been fine. But if you live in an area where you get racially profiled, where you get beaten or, or murdered by the police, and you say, I don't, I don't think this is right, and I see this too much in my community, well, it's difficult to relate to someone who's never seen it in their community, who knows all the police officers in their community, who uh, you know, plays poker with them on the weekends. You know, I don't think that George Floyd was playing poker with Derek Chauvin on the weekends. And when he was murdered by Derek Chauvin, people had a visceral reaction to it because it was on tape. And the the backlash is just from, I think there's a cultural disconnect. Some people see the police as the thin blue line. Some of them see them as aggressors and oppressors. And the truth of the matter is that it's not black and white. The, the truth is somewhere in between. I think the truth of the matter is it's both. In places, it's one, it's one way, and in other places, it's another way. Mm-hmm. I think both are out there. And the danger is uh, classifying everybody under the same umbrella. Yeah. Uh, that they're not, there are some bad people everywhere. There's some bad police, and there's some good police. And um, you, don't, you don't throw away all the good ones because of some of the bad ones. You know, you have to, I think both. I think it's both. Both at the same time. Yeah. And we have to do something about it. So what are we going to do about it? Let's see what Ben Rhodes has to say. This is, of course, a discussion about terrorism. We got a little bit off the track. But more us, less them. That's his uh, diagnosis. Wait, no. What do you call it? Prescription. That's his prescription for the remedy. (laughs) Let's. uh, Yeah, this is his 
This is his epilogue. This is his conclusion. Yes. All these lessons must be applied to an intensifying competition with China. Biden is justifying huge outlays on infrastructure by pointing to the need to prove that democracies can outcompete the CCP's state-controlled capitalism. Congress is investing substantial resources in science and technology to keep pace with Chinese innovation. The Biden White House is proposing industrial policies that would favor certain U.S. industries and refining export control regimes to disentangle critical supply chains that link the United States and China. U.S. defense spending is increasingly shaped by future contingencies involved the People's Liberation Army. The State Department has prioritized the fortification of U.S. alliances in Asia and enhanced contacts with Taiwan. Washington has become increasingly critical of Chinese human rights violations in places such as Hong Kong and Xinjiang. On trade, technology, and human rights, the United States is working with partners through multilateral organizations such as the G7 and NATO to forge the firmest possible united front against China. These efforts will create their own political incentives and pressures. They will also create momentum for the expansion of resources and bandwidth within the U.S. government. Already, one can sense the ocean liner slightly adjusting course. Yet, although each of these initiatives has its own justification, it would be a mistake to simply focus on the new them, an impulse that could facilitate another wave of nationalist authoritarianism of the kind that has poisoned American politics for the past 20 years. Better to focus more on us, a democracy resilient enough to withstand a long-term competition with a rival political model, forge consensus among the world's democracies, and set a better example to the world. In addition to delivering on big ticket items such as infrastructure, American democracy must be fortified and revitalized. Protecting the right to vote and strengthening democratic institutions at home must be the cornerstone of the United States democratic example. Addressing inequality and racial injustice in the United States would demonstrate that democracies can deliver for everyone. Rooting out corruption that flows through the U.S. financial system would help clean up American politics and choke off resources that flow to autocrats in other countries. Stemming the flood of disinformation Information and hate speech on U.S. social media platforms would curb radicalization and undermine authoritarianism all over the world. For 30 years, the U.S. government has prioritized economic interests over human rights in dealings with the CCP, and so have many American companies, cultural institutions, and individuals. This must change, not because of Washington's geopolitical opposition to Beijing, but because of the United States' support for democratic values at home and around the globe. The world is a difficult and sometimes dangerous place. The United States must assert itself to defend its interest. But the post-post-9-11 era should be defined not only by a confrontation with the next enemy in line, but rather by the revitalization of democracy as a successful means of human organization. To replace the war on terror with a better generational project, Americans have to be driven by what they are for, not what they are against. Hey, hey. Ben Rhodes. Uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of like uh, lead by example. Uh-huh. Stop, stop talking. Stop saying one thing and doing another. Lead by example. Yeah. You start clean up your house first, and then, then your words are powerful. <clears throat> but uh, your words can be misused against you if your house is in an order. Yeah, I, I think that sort of defining what you're for, not what you are against, is a fascinating thing because it's much harder. Um, 
And I think that, you know, Ben Rhodes, he was clearly a U.S. Deputy National Security Advisor in the Obama administration. A lot of the policy proposals were clearly reflective of perhaps his, his partisan leaning. And yet, if you take the Democrats between 2016 and 2020, the biggest defining feature was that they were against Trump. If you think about it, it wasn't that yeah. they were for anything. So I think it's easy to say there's this politics of division and it's their fault. Uh, so, you know, a Republican will say, yeah, there's way too much divisiveness in America and it's all the Democrats' fault. And a Democrat will say there's way too much divisiveness in America and it's, surprisingly enough, all the Republicans' fault. Um, it's like my buddy that just broke up with his girlfriend, you know? And, you know, he's calling me to tell me about it. And, you know, according to him, it was all her fault. <laughs> he didn't do a thing wrong. She did everything wrong. And people, they want to believe that. They want to believe that they don't have to change. But I think that what he's saying is we do need to change. And we need to decide what we're for. And then we need to move in that direction. And it's going to be difficult because us versus them has become internal as well as you know, counterterrorism or, or China. It shouldn't just be us versus China in the 21st century. It should be who are we and are we, are we living up to that definition of who we are? Yeah, I think that's a very good message. Very good message because uh, it's human nature and countries are human too. And that is when you focus on what you're against, then it's, it's easy to override the good part, because what you're against, you can talk about the bad parts, and that's more powerful. When you try to push what you're for, you bring uh, people together. Uh, and so when you talk about what you're against, you separate people. And sometimes that's very powerful, and that does work, and that does win. Uh, and we, we saw it win uh, over the, this past uh, couple of administrations. You say, this is what I'm against. And it's easy to attack people. Mm -hmm. It's easy to bring people down. It's easy to knock down that, that sandcastle. It's much more difficult to build it up and what you're for and bringing people together. Uh, but when you do, that, gonna ha that has a much longer lasting, powerful message. And you're building something much more powerful when you build up uh, than when you tear down. Now, when you tear down, uh, that's powerful too, but it's very short term and it can turn on you, which we've seen. Yeah. Well, I think uh, this is just an example of it can turn on you. Um, people, I think they conflate Trump with conservatism because I studied politics in college and I mean, Trump literally sent everyone a check for $1,200 free money. That's the least conservative thing you could possibly do. <laughs> that is like almost the definition of communism, just giving people money for no reason. Oh, well, it was for the pandemic. But um, I think that people's ideas of what is Republican or what is conservative, they don't really understand political theory. It's whatever they're told. And the fascinating thing is that things can run away and get out of control very easily if there's no ideology. So when Trump gave the rally and he said, the vaccines are good, I got it, and everyone starts booing him, 
he quickly backtracks. He says, but it's, you know it's all a personal choice. It's all a personal choice. So he tried to say, you know, you should go out and get vaccinated. And to his credit, good for him. Good for him for trying to say that. And then when he gets booed by his crowd, you realize maybe those people, um, they've slightly gotten away from him. He can't say, go get vaccinated. And they say, yeah, we're going to get vaccinated now. They say, no, that's not what we've been told. Vaccines are bad. We're going to boo you, Donald Trump. And then he'll say, but it's all your choice. He's like, yay. He, he's quickly capitulated on his public health message. I think it's fascinating because even he can't tell them what to do. And there's this assumption that, oh, whatever he tells them, they'll do. But that's not really true. It's, it's uncertain. It's like a ghost train. No one knows who's driving it now. It's true. And uh, there will always be wars and rumors of wars because uh, it's much easier to attack uh, than to build up. And so I think what Ben Rhodes is trying to say is that we need to start thinking internally and building up our strength internally. And I think that's because that will last. That will overcome uh, the, uh, the attacks, but it's much more difficult. But it's longer lasting and it's much more rewarding, mm-hmm. much more rewarding. So hopefully, uh, again, foreign affairs, these foreign affairs articles are so valuable, so important uh, that these voices are heard. And uh, and I, I, it's a good article and, I, and uh, it was brought up a lot of good points. Yes. And I'm also glad Ben Rhodes, he's not he's not sitting on a lot of fences here. He's saying exactly what he feels. From a, That's right. From a That's position right. of expertise. That's right. It's That's less, right. like I said earlier, it's less dis- diplomatic than it would have been were he still a diplomat. That's right. And so... And like, when, he, when he's talking about everything they're, they're doing with uh, uh, the, within the United States and, and uh, what Biden is trying to do with the infrastructure and the supply chains and and the pandemic and uh, all of that is you always have to have that internally. And when that becomes stronger, well, then as an as an uh, uh, in addition to that, then you can address foreign foreign issues. Mm-hmm. But you can't be strong with foreign foreign issues and foreign affairs if you're not strong at home. Yeah. Also, you got to figure out what are you going to sell people? I think this is the last sentence is the thesis. We have to sell people on what who we are, not who we are against. And then we move in the direction of who we are. Yeah, I agree with that. Well said. That's excellent. Excellent. Um, so, hey, shout out to Ben Rhodes. His new book is called After the Fall, Being American in the World We've Made. Shout out to Foreign Affairs. New editor, new glossy cover. And this issue is on terrorism. Uh, Who won the war on terror, I believe, is what the cover says. We'll probably be doing more articles because they're fun. Uh, Fun just to do a discussion. Also, Ben Rhodes is the host of the podcast Pod Save the World and co-host. So he's a podcaster just like us. Um, And I think I'll play the outro music. Do you think we've discussed this enough? I think we've done it enough. Okay. It's been fun. We've had so much fun. I hope... Uh, our listeners uh, enjoyed it with us. Yes. Um, so is there anything you'd like to say before we leave? Sure. Sunset Aquarius says, keep on talking. 
uh, but listen more than you talk and try to understand what the other person is saying. We'll see you next time, everyone. Bye.